You know, there's something different about the air at the end of September. And I don't just mean that in the last few days we've had smoke. You can smell the end of summer. The days are still warm, but the nights cool off quickly. Uh, leaves are starting to, to change color. The spiders are setting up shop all over our deck furniture on the back deck. Uh, in an ordinary year, our thoughts would turn to uh, the activities that we're going to take up again. This year is a teeny bit extraordinary. But this we know. For most of us, vacation is over. I do hope you manage to have a little vacation, some time off this summer. Uh, ours in August was just awesome, actually. That's great. Okay. Well, when we were, when our kids were little, vacation always included Lake Retreat Camp and Conference Center, which is a Christian family camp near Renton, Washington. After the first few years, I knew the roads well enough that I, I didn't have to pay much attention to the signs. I, I knew how to get there. And like many guys I know, I don't like to ask for directions. We would always go through Seattle, and after we passed Boeing Field beside Interstate 5, it, it would start to look really familiar. One year, I took the familiar exit, or the familiar looking exit, and made a few familiar looking turns. And in no time at all, I was completely lost. Now this was, you gotta understand, this was back in the day when nobody owned a, a GPS or a mobile phone. Well, eventually I, I admitted, as hard as it was, that I was lost. And I stopped at a gas station to get some directions. The attendant just smiled and he sold me an overpriced map. Well, we finally got to where we wanted to go, just a little later than we expected to. Now, it was right for me to stop and ask directions that day, as much as I didn't want to do it. But if I hadn't, I'd still be trying to find my way out of the area on the west side of, of I-5 near Puyallup, Washington. Sometimes it's easy to figure out what to do, and it comes easily to us. At other times, the right thing is, is actually counterintuitive. It, it goes against our intuition, but in the end, it turns out to be correct. In the last part of Romans 12, where we are this morning, we see some things that seem right and seem natural, and others that, that don't come naturally. You know, for example, we know we should love friends and family, but, but Jesus told us to love our enemies too. That's counterintuitive. Paul is going to tell us that we're supposed to bless people who curse us and, and not to try to get even when someone does us wrong? Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. That's exactly how as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to act. So let's take a look at how to live this out, but let's pray as we start. Father, thank you for this day. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to our, our, our souls, our spirits, our hearts, as well as our minds, as we look at what you preserved for us and what the Apostle Paul has written under the guidance and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Please turn to Romans 12, and we will read together. Uh, we're going to start at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So just for review, all of this is set in the context of the first two sentences of this chapter, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and uh, proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we're to be living sacrifices. We're to be holy and pleasing to God. And, and that means we're, we're to put our lives on God's altar and, and no longer to live for ourselves, but to live for God and for God's glory. We can't do that in our own strength. It's only possible through this renewal produced in us by the Holy Spirit. And this will be the last time, I promise that I'll say this, because we've said it about four times in a row now, that a new way of thinking leads to a new way of behaving. As we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in us, we are transformed. Our minds are renewed, and our behavior changes. It is going to show. The Apostle James said it this way. He said, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And what James is saying here is that a, a, a faith that saves, a saving faith, will be seen. It, it will be demonstrated through good works, good things, and will produce fruit in keeping with God's Spirit. And so when Paul here in Romans 12, gives us these instructions that we looked at at the beginning. We know also that God will supply what we need to live this way. What's the purpose? Why does he say he's giving these things to us? These commands 
and the ones last time, are given so that we may live in harmony with others, whether or not they are Christians. Now, as, as we talked about in the last section, the instructions here are also imperatives, they're commands. So it really is imperative that we do these things. If God tells us to do something, we need to do it. It's kind of like, well, it's like observing the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. God didn't call them the Ten Suggestions. They were ten words from God on how to live. And while we, we can, can never do these things perfectly, they, they do perfectly describe behavior that honors God and honors people. So, with minds renewed by Jesus, these things are going to be seen in us. Why is this so important? Well, first of all, because living this way is living God's way. It's pleasing to Him, and it reflects His values, His nature, and His qualities. Second, it's important because we're His witnesses. And the world is watching us. They will know we are Christians. How? By our love. Love for God. Love for God's family. And love in the way we treat even those who do not yet know Jesus. So let's, and that's counterintuitive. So let's look at this counterintuitive behavior. This is about living in harmony. The first thing he says to do is bless others. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How do you feel inside when somebody treats you poorly? Do, do you want to fight back? Do you want to take your baseball glove and, and, and ball and, and go home because you're just not going to play the game anymore? What do you say? Do you say something like, well, that's the last time I'm ever going to go out of my way to help them? No, you don't. You shouldn't. Because genuine love, the love Paul talks about here in verse 9, is a love that speaks well of others, even, even our persecutors. It, it, it certainly doesn't trash talk them. Now, let, let's be honest. It's relatively easy to bless those who treat you well. But if, if we're also being honest, when someone really gets up in our faces or gets on our case, our first reaction isn't to treat them with this kind of generosity of spirit. We're more likely to say something back or to try to hurt them if they've hurt us. This is tough stuff. This, this command, this is difficult. But, you know, Jesus addressed this in his sermon that he gave on the side of the mountain, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. And similarly, in Luke chapter 6, he said, but, I, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. 
This, this is totally counterintuitive, but it shows the world. It shows our culture that, that we are holding to a standard very different to those who do not know Jesus. So instead of giving as good as we get, Jesus says, respond to scorn or hate with love. Here's a good illustration of it from a funny, an odd source, you might think. Mahatma Gandhi, uh, the great Hindu leader who led India's fight to independence in the 20th century, was known for a philosophy of passive resistance or nonviolence, even in the face of violent mistreatment at the hands of the people who were oppressing India. Do you know where he got the idea? Well, Mr. Gandhi was a lawyer and lived in South Africa for many years before he returned to India for the fight for independence. And he studied, among other things, Christianity. He was profoundly affected by the life of Jesus and by Jesus' refusal to retaliate against those who were even about to arrest him and put him to death. That's where he got it. And so Jesus and, and Paul didn't just say, don't retaliate. He said, bless those who curse you. Don't curse them. That's the first. Okay, bless those. Bless others. And second, encourage others through the joys and sorrows of life. Another way of saying this would be, do life together with people. Come alongside them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And Paul says, share in their happiness when, they, when something good happens. That actually is difficult for some people because some, of, some people can be quite envious of the success of others. That's our old nature, and our old nature is competitive. It's all about winning, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it isn't always easy to enjoy someone else's success when you're struggling really, really badly. Many people find it easier actually to comfort others than they do to enjoy others' successes. And yet, the Spirit of God gives us this ability. That's counterintuitive living. Christian or not, most of us know what it's like to lose a parent, a spouse, or a child. And we know how awful it feels. But many of us have been comforted by others in those times. Now, coming alongside someone who weeps or mourns is a mark of love and reflects the Holy Spirit. I mean, how can we not have compassion on those who experience grief? Second Corinthians tells us that God is the God of the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now, Paul told them, he told that church, there should be no division there, no division in the body, he said, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And then he added, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 
So you can see that Paul kind of borrowed from himself when he wrote these letters to Rome or to Corinth or to some of the other uh, churches in, the, in Asia. But he's saying the same thing a little differently, but that's the truth of it. As Christians, we own other people's joys and sorrows. So we're encouraged to do life together. So, and this verse and, and the next one are actually tied closely together. Because the other thing we're supposed to do if we're living in harmony is ah, get along for the glory of God. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Don't be willing to associate with people. Sorry. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. True Christian love does not show partiality. Why then? Is it so hard to live in harmony? I think I can sum it up in one word. Pride. Paul knows it. And so he reminds us, don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. I like the New King James Version here of the same, this same sentence. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Literally, he says, don't be wise. Yeah, do not be wise in your own opinion. What he's actually saying literally is don't be wise in your own eyes. And what do we call being wise in your own eyes? Having a big opinion of yourself? That's pride. So he said, be on guard against pride. Because pride's insidious. If we do a good job... Let's say we even do a good job of following these things, these instructions. The first thing we want to do about it is brag. Man, I was so good today. What I did for you today was epic, Lord. Oops. Maybe God looks down from heaven and goes, Oh, dear. Don't believe your own press reports. Do you remember that the level playing field that Paul talked about earlier in Romans? He said that we're all equal before the Father now in Jesus. He said it in Galatians 2. He said in Jesus, there is no slave or free. There's no male or free male, female. There's no Jewish or Greek people. He said, we are all one in Christ. That equality has to soak into all our relationships, and it has to influence what we do. The, the phrase that is trans, translated into English, people of low position. Low position can mean either, either humble people or even humble things. Be willing to do anything, no matter how menial it is. If God wants the toilets cleaned and you have the scrub brush, well, don't wait for someone else to do it. Now, we know, partly because Paul's he's writing about it here, but he's mentioned it before, pride was an issue in this church. The, the Gentile Christians were, were kind of looking down on their Jewish brothers and sisters, and the Jewish people were feeling a little superior because of their heritage as God's chosen people and looking sideways at, at the Gentile Christians. 
but maybe it was being expressed other ways too. Maybe it was being seen in a resistance to do the, the menial things. I don't know. I just know that there's no place for that kind of prideful thinking in Jesus' church. The greatest example to follow is the example of Jesus himself. And that's what he told the Philippians. He said, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Okay, so this is how we're supposed to behave. And, and I think it's also how we, we would like to behave. We would like to be these people. So how do we respond then when we're on the receiving end of evil behavior, bad behavior? How do we respond when we're being treated poorly? How do, how do Christians, say, in, in India respond? Or other countries, say any country. I don't want to single one out. How do Christians respond when the people in an area are coming out and doing horrible things or even committing atrocities against the followers of Jesus? He tells us, don't respond in kind to bad behavior. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Everyone. Hmm. I, I got in trouble with a new parent once because I used the actions of toddlers to illustrate original sin. <laughs> really. <laughs> All I said was, anyone who doesn't believe in original sin has never met a two-year-old. What happens when a two-year-old takes a toy away from another two-year-old or does something that they don't like? They clobber the other kid. We have to train them not to. The way we respond to evil says a lot more about us than the way we respond to good. I, let me explain. Our, our old nature in us screams at us when something like that happens. Like say, scream, go on, get him, come on. He hit you first, hit back. But the Bible says we've been set free from the control of that old nature so that we can live in the new way of the Spirit. Romans 8.1 Non-retaliation is the least we can do, the bare minimum. Not seriously, it's the least we can do. There's many more things we can do. No, we have to go a lot further than that. We, we have to try to do what's right in the eyes of everyone, Paul says. Live at peace with everyone as much as it's up to us. That's counterintuitive. But having said that, there are two 
words of caution here about living at peace with everyone. Let me get this to change. All right. First of all, it doesn't mean going against God's moral demands in order to live at peace with them. Sometimes people simply will not be at peace with us because we will not do what they want us to do, or we don't think and agree with them on the way they think. For, for example, if a trade worker wants us to pay them in, a, in cash under the table so they can avoid paying income tax, it's not acceptable to go along with it just to keep the peace. It's morally wrong. We're actually going to talk more about some of these demands on us in our culture next time in chapter 13. Second, it's not always possible simply because it just always, it isn't always in our power to achieve. Some of us have people in our lives who are uh, very antagonistic, anti-faith, um, people who might mock us or who might actually oppose what we want to do. Their argument is really with Jesus. But the thing is, there's the rub. You and I represent Jesus to them. You might be doing everything right, responding gently, trying to love them, but nothing you do changes them. What do you do? Do you give up? No, you keep doing the right thing. As far, that's why Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He wants us to be peacemakers, not people who break the peace. Peacemakers, not peace breakers. Why? Why isn't it okay to hit back? Because, verse 19, when we seek revenge, we have begun acting in God's arena. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Let God deal with it. Leave room for God's wrath. God is the one who says he will avenge, and he will. You might say, well, why should we leave it up to God? Because God sees all. He knows all. He has all power. And God alone is perfectly just. We are not. Leave it up to God and take comfort in this. Because God is perfectly just, he will not ultimately allow evil to go unpunished. And we can trust him in this. We can trust him to avenge what people do to us. God, as we heard again in the last sessions, God hates evil. His wrath burns against evil. So, so don't stray into God's territory on this one. And yeah, it's hard. And I think that's why, I think that's why revenge movies are so popular. 
The problem with them, aside from the fact that it's it's just wrong, <laughs> one of the reasons is that they're based on this faulty idea. There's a faulty premise in most of them that human inventions can somehow accomplish something noble. I had to take care of, I had to take that guy out. Leave it to the one who can and will mete out justice perfectly. So then, how do we respond? How do we respond? Counterintuitively. Instead, he says, respond in a loving way. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head? Interesting. We continue to act and do things in a loving way to those who treat us poorly. And he says, if you do that, you heap burning coals on them. There's two ways to understand this saying. Most, most Bible scholars think that it means that, that um, the, the person will become ashamed of what they've done and try to figure out why we're able to respond with such love. And they'll, they'll end up burning with shame. They'll be embarrassed. You know how your cheeks flush when you, when you, uh, when you know you've done something wrong? Yeah. The other way to understand it is in the bigger picture, the context of God's wrath. Burning coals in Scripture usually refer to judgment. It's likely a little bit of both. The people are inviting God's wrath through what they do, but we hope that responding to them with love will change their hearts and that we will overcome the evil with good. Well, Paul began this, this code of conduct, verse 9, with hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And he bookends it here. He concludes it with do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Either end, it's kind of cool. Uh, clinging to what is good, doing what is good, living in this way, living in a way that's counterintuitive to to this don't-get-mad-get-even culture. That's what overcomes evil. And through the grace of the gospel lived out and the power of the Spirit, we can be victorious over the evils of the world. That's, it's just counterintuitive living. But doesn't that describe what our Lord did at the cross? Jesus overcame evil and sin by an act of weakness, Death on a cross. That's counterintuitive. By his perfect sacrifice, he defeated sin and death. He overcame hate with love. And when his enemies thought they had won, watching him die on the cross, they had no idea that the most powerful event in history was taking place, the ultimate act of love. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. John 15, 13. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross, Lord. This is what we are called to, to be imitators of Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, living with his example, 
living through his instructions given by the Holy Spirit to Paul and the other apostles reserved for us in this trustworthy word of God. Let's do that. Let's have counterintuitive lives live in this new way of the Spirit instead of the old way that responds in kind. Let's pray. We bless you today, Lord Jesus, living this way is possible only because of you and only in you. It makes our hearts want to sing and shout your praise and encourages us to imitate you when we see what you accomplished, when we see your example. Lord, give us that humility. Give us that empowerment. Fill us with your spirits to lead the kinds of lives that bring honor and glory to you and bring others to you as well in a saving faith as they see the truth of the gospel, respond, and receive new life in you. In Jesus, in your name, we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, thanks once again for hanging in to the end. Uh, God bless you. I hope you have a great week.